And so that's the complete uh, guide to hand raising in church. All right, if you're new here and you're wondering why do people raise their hand in church, well, uh, that you know that's kind of a little bit of a guide to it. And maybe if you want to try it, maybe you could just start with your hands in your pockets and flap flap your elbows, and then see what happens from there. Um, But this morning, uh, what we're talking about uh, is on this topic of worship. What is true worship? What is true worship? What is it? Uh, I was recently in India and we saw some worship like this where you have some statues and some smoke uh, coming out of it and people bowing down uh, to uh, some idols. Or uh, when we were even on the train, we saw a whole bunch of Muslim people uh, getting on the trains, making their pilgrimage to a holy site. Or you see um, Buddhists, monks, you see them uh, spending a lot of time in meditation. Or sometimes we see um, charismatic worship, where you have kind of a rock band up the front, and everyone's just up the front with their hands in the air, and they're sort of going for it. That's a, that's a style of worship. And then maybe you have, like, you know, traditional worship. You have people standing with a book and looking a little bit more stoic and just kind of singing hymns out of a book. What is true worship? That's what we're talking about today. And if you've joined us today, you've kind of joined us in the middle of a series. We've been looking at the life of David. Oh, there's one more. There's one more uh, type of worship, uh, and that's the worship of our culture, huh? The the football, all right? That's another kind of worship. Everyone gets their hands in their air. Um, But we've been in the middle of this series in the life of David, and we're going to see that David teaches us something about worship today, and it's in a really strange way because David worships God in his underpants. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Uh, David worships God in his underpants, and we actually learn something about the nature of true worship from that. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, and if you came in today, you would have received a little A5 handout. That's the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, today. And so... um, What we've seen so far is that David has been on this pathway to the throne as the king of Israel. But the whole time, someone has been in his way. Saul has been in his way, the first king of Israel. Well, last week we found out that King Saul died, and this opens a window of opportunity for David to now become the king. And unlike Saul, David wants God to be at the center of the people's worship. He wants them to be right there in the middle. Now, to do that, David has to go and retrieve something called the Ark of the Covenant to the capital of Jerusalem. Now, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you might know something about the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones searched desperately for it. No one's ever seen the Ark of the Covenant in the last 2,000 years except for Harrison Ford. He has seen it. Well, what is the ark? Uh, The ark is um, uh, the ark uh, is is basically a box. It's a box that was covered with gold. When the Israelite uh, people left Egypt, God told them to to construct this big box. Let me just bring it up for you—a picture of it, uh, a picture of it. And it's the ark that actually teaches us what true worship really is. And so this morning, I want to kind of show you four things about this ark in the chapter, and you can follow along in this handout. Firstly, the procession of the ark. Secondly, the problem of the ark. Thirdly, the purpose of the ark. And fourthly, the proper response to the ark. That's right, four Ps. Don't hate me. That's just the way it came out. Four Ps. The procession, the problem, the purpose, 
and the problem, proper response to the ark. So let's have a look firstly at the procession of the ark from 2 Samuel 6 verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So the ark is being paraded in to the capital of Jerusalem. So why is it being paraded in? Where has the ark been? Well, it's an interesting story. I'll try and cut it uh, really short. But in 1 Samuel 4, basically, the Philistines, which were the enemy people of Israel, they stole the ark in the, middle of, in the midst of battle. So they took the ark away, and I don't think they knew what they were getting themselves into. Because the, the way the story plays out is they take the ark back to their land, and they put it in the house of their god, Dagon. And so they put it in, in this kind of house of, of Dagon. And then the next morning they come in and they find that Dagon, the statue, he's lying on the ground. And the Ark of the Covenant's just suspiciously standing upright in the corner. And, and so they set uh, Dagon back up in his place. And then the next morning they come in and guess what? Dagon's on the floor again. This time his head is broken off and his hands are broken off. And so this starts to freak the Philistines out, and at the same time, they actually start to break out in tumours, and there's this infestation of mice that come upon them. Uh, now, let me ask you, have you ever got a present that you didn't like, and you decided to re-gift it? Well, this is actually what happens here with the Philistines. They decide to re-gift the Ark of the Covenant, uh, because there's just something going, going on with its presence among them. And so they send it to another tribe, uh, the tribe of Gath, another Philistine tribe, but the same thing happens. Tumors and mice come upon them. And so they regift the, the ark and they stick it on a new cart and with some cows to carry it and they send it over the border. Now, back over to Israel. Now, this man Shemesh, he sees it, he recognizes it for what it is and he brings it into his home and it blesses him for a while until some men get curious and they open the lid and look in and they die. And so Shemesh decides to re-gift it to Abinadab, and he puts it in a room in his house where it remains for 20 years. So just imagine going to Abinadab's house and being like, hey, what's in that room, bro? And he's just like, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. And so all through Saul's reign, this Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, it's hidden somewhere on the outskirts of Israel in some man's house. Saul never wanted it. He never wanted God's presence among the people. And maybe you can see why. Because the presence of God is not necessarily the easiest thing to have around. 
The presence of God actually causes some trouble here. But now David's king, and David wants to bring it in. He sees the value of God's presence being among the people. And so that's the reason for this grand procession that we just read out, is, is that the ark is coming in. It's coming back into the center of the people, and there's 30,000 men dancing, and they're singing, and they're celebrating. And it makes, as it makes its way back in. But now, David actually gets a real reality check about the ark. We see now the problem of the ark, the problem of it. Just have a look from verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. I mean, just think about this. If you're having a parade, if you're having a party, and then somebody gets striked to the ground, the party's over. It's done. The procession is over. And right here in this moment, You might be thinking to yourself as you hear this, yeah, this is everything I hate about the Christian God. This is everything that I hate about the Bible. I mean, Uzzah puts out his hand because the oxen stumbled. He was doing God a favor. He was trying to keep the the box uh, up off the ground. He was doing you a favor, God, and you struck him dead for it. How petty must God be? How cranky must God be? How petty is he? This is what I can't stand about Christianity. You can't be gay. You can't have sex before marriage. There's a thousand other rules you have to obey, and if you don't obey them, you're going to go to hell for it. And so the problem here that the ark presents here for everyone is this. The punishment seems too severe for the crime. It's too severe, and we hate that. Like, Even if someone does kind of sin a bit for 70 years of their life, just the 70-year period, how do they deserve to burn in hell for the rest of eternity for that? Like, this is a person who does their bit, they, they, uh, they mow their neighbor's lawn, they give a little bit of money to charity. Like, how is it fair that God sends somebody to eternal hell for that? How is that a loving God? You see the problem? In our minds, the punishment seems too severe for the crime. And there's this little trigger that goes off in our minds and in our hearts about justice. This is not fair. This is not fair. If God is real, well, I don't really like him very much at all. God seems cranky. God seems petty. But the very reason that we jump to this conclusion, if you think about it, is simply because we're not in a position to understand and appreciate the gravity of who God is. We're just simply not in that position. You see, the problem here with David and Uzzah is that they have good intentions. They are leading this procession of worship. There's a lot of people singing, dancing, and playing musical instruments, but they don't understand the weight of God's glory and his holiness. Their good intentions don't match the absolute perfection of who God is. You see, if they did understand that, they would not have put the ark of God on a a cart to be carried by oxen. They knew the law of God from history past, that the, the ark of God was not to be touched by anybody. It was to be carried by Levite priests only. And they decided to ignore this advice and 
That'll do. We'll stick it on a new cart and lead it in with a grand procession. If they did know, in no circumstance would Uzzah ever think to touch the ark. There were gold rings which were on the corners of the ark, which two poles would be fed through in order for it to be carried. They knew from the law that the ark could not be touched. You see, God is not so much interested in procession, the party, the atmosphere, the band. He must be worshipped for who he is. And David and Uzzah presumed that this would do. This would do. Just think about it. How would you feel if you'd done something really well in your workplace and so your boss decided to publicly award you for it, to reward you for it in public? But, but when he got up, he spoke about the wrong things, the things that you didn't do and other, other random things. He didn't really know who you were and what you'd done. How would you feel? It would actually be very cold praise for you. Oh, oh you were praised, but not for who you are and not for what you'd done. And so that's no praise at all. And actually, you'd probably, feel leaving, you'd probably leave feeling a bit insulted. And so... David and Uzzah, they did not inquire of God. They did not seek the instructions of his word. And so they end up carrying the ark of God into the capital in the same way that the Philistines carried it, in the same way as their enemies did. And therefore, they treated God like their enemy. This can be true of worship today. It looks like worship. It smells like worship. It sounds like worship. But only God knows if it's true worship. And that is worship that actually exalts God for who he is. And so God here is not cranky. He's not petty. God is holy. He's holy. That's who he is. Now, what does this mean? It's something, I I guess, that we don't talk about enough. What does it actually mean that God is holy? Well, the very concept of having a God and the very concept of having a good God is that he actually must be perfect in every way. If he wasn't, he couldn't be God. And so God's holiness is actually the sum total of all of his attributes, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his kindness. All of these things are perfect in their form. And, and that kind of perfection, if you think about it, is totally foreign to us. It's totally foreign. I mean, I just can't even explain it. it it's so foreign to us. You, I mean, the closest thing that we have to perfection is when we're holding those, those newborn babies in our arms. And, and, and pretty soon we work out that that ain't the case. Can I get an amen from mums and dads? We pretty soon work out that newborn children are not perfect. We, we cannot get into the place of understanding how perfect and pure and holy God is. He is so far distinct and other than we are. He actually deserves the most utmost reverence and awe and fear because of who he is. And they didn't understand that perfection, and we don't understand that perfection. Why? Because we're flawed. We're flawed people. We've never been in the presence of such perfection. And we can't judge it because we're flawed people. And so this perfection is totally foreign. It was totally foreign to them, and that's what they didn't understand. And the second thing that they didn't understand was the gravity of their sinful imperfection. They didn't understand that. And so God's perfection and our imperfection, they don't go together. It's like fire and water. One has to consume the other. They just don't mix. And we kind of like to think that we're 
pretty sweet with God because we passed the good bloke test. I, I love good blokes. I love to be you know, in a pub somewhere watching some sport and I meet some random guy and we click and we have a chat for an hour and I love walking away going, man, that guy's such a good bloke. Uh, anyone else like doing that? You just like meeting someone and just like, what a great bloke. And, and we, this is kind of how we think uh, that kind of passes with God. If somebody passes the good bloke test and it's fine, you know, it's, it's, it's great. And we kind of use that as the scale and the measure of God. God will be okay with you. And in every sense, Uzzah seems to be a good bloke. I mean, you look at with all sincerity from what we can see, he reached out to stop that thing from hitting the ground with good intentions. He, he did it with sincerity. That's a sincere act of wanting to do something good. But even in his sincerity, wanting to help, doing something good, he misses the point of God's holiness. That God is perfect. That God cannot be approached. And it's actually not lost on me at all that this totally offends our moral sensibilities. This, this offends me. It offended me this week when I read it. And, and if you're offended by this, by the fact that God strikes us a dead, that's kind of the point of this text. You're supposed to be offended. And I don't think that the writers would have included this in the Bible if they were trying to make you feel good about yourself. It just doesn't have that effect. No, this, this is here because it offends us. Uh, it's basically in line and showing you the difference between you and God. He is holy and we are not. Now, think about this. It would have actually been better for Uzzah not to touch the ark and let it fall and hit the dirt and the mud of the ground. It would have been better. Why? Well, because the dirt and the earth has never rebelled against God. You know that? You know the creation? It obeys God. The wind and the waves obey God. The earth obeys God. It's never rejected God. But people, humanity has rejected God. We have rebelled against God. Therefore, we cannot come into his holy presence or we'll be consumed by him. We don't mix. We're like fire and water. And so this account is basically making us come to grips with the depth of our fallenness, even our sincerity of religion. It doesn't appease God. Nothing can. Our sin doesn't just make us bad, it actually cuts us off from God, it separates us from God, it makes us spiritually dead. And, and this offends our pride, it offends our pride. But in order to truly worship God, you have to decide whether God offends you or whether you have offended God. That's kind of the crux. You have to decide. Every person has to decide this in their heart. And I can't force that on anyone. I actually realize I don't have any power or authority to force that on everyone. Every person has to decide for themselves. Does God offend me or have I offended God? There's been another way around this, particularly I've seen it in my generation. It's been basically to try and change and reconstruct who God is to make him more palatable. And so you're offended by God, so you try to change him, you try and change the Bible, you change the message, you change all the ethic, all your sort of moral ethics, all that sort of stuff. You change it, and pretty much the message just becomes about everyone getting along, doing as they please in the name of love. That's the 21st sort of century version of Christianity that I'm seeing more and more, but that's not true worship. It might look like people in a room, people might still be gathering. Together, they might even have their hands in the air, doing churchy things, 
But it's not true worship. You see, worshipping is honouring God for who he is, for who he is. He is holy. And that means that the first step to actually knowing God is that you have to agree that in your sinful state, you and God don't mix. You're not a match. You're a mismatch. You and God, you just, you don't mix. You're like fire and water. He's different and he's above you. He's not a man or a woman. He's different. He's holy. And so in verse 8, we see that David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah, or basically the place where God struck Uzzah down. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? What an interesting question. I mean, doesn't this rate, you raise that as you think about that, about God's holy perfection? You actually have that question. Well, then how can the presence of God come to me? How do we become a match? I kind of think from this description, David's conflicted. In some way, God's penalty on Uzzah does offend him. It does offend him. At the same time, he's confused. He's afraid about how the presence of the Lord can ever actually come amongst his people because that's what he wanted. He did want God to be the center of his worship. And he's also angry with himself, I think, because he didn't consult God. He, he disrespected God. And we do know that David was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to do the right thing. But in this moment, he sends the ark away. You see what he's saying? We don't mix. We don't mix. How could I be in his presence? Uh, you know, this is actually a big part of the journey of people coming to know God for real. There's this flippancy that kind of about them that actually falls away. Yeah, me and God are sweet. Yeah, I'm just doing my thing. We, you know, we're sweet. But actually, that falls away. And your eyes are open to his holiness. And you're filled with awe and reverence. And you're fully aware that you're not worthy to, to be in his presence. You don't mix. And so David sends the ark away from his presence to this man called Obed-Edom. He was a family of the Levites. He was from the family who was supposed to care for the ark, who were designated by God to care for the ark, and he's entrusted to care for the ark. And Obed-Edom, he willingly receives it, and he takes it into his care, and there's this interesting thing that happens. The presence of the ark in his home, it actually starts to bless the family. It actually starts to bless him. Now we're seeing the purpose of the ark, the true purpose of the ark. The other night, I was sitting out around in my backyard with some friends having a fire. And when you're sitting around a fire, it's burning and the coals are hot. You're very aware. You're very aware of its power, its danger, especially when you've got kids around. You're trying to keep them back from the fire. You're aware of its danger. You're aware that if you came into contact, that it could easily consume you. And so because of that, what do you do? You respect the fire. You actually respect it. You treat it as it is for what it is. And if you do, you actually find that it's comforting. You actually find that you experience warmth from that fire. There's intimacy around that fire. There's nothing like having a fire that actually breeds intimacy. And this is what happens in the house of Obed-Edom. The ark starts to bless them. The ark starts to bring the warmth of intimacy, of the intimacy of God's presence. 
And the beautiful thing about this is that God makes sure that David hears about it. You see this in the text? He makes sure, God makes sure that David hears about this blessing. It's the good news of the ark because the men, uh, David's men, they come and say, hey, did you hear? Did you hear that the ark, you know, that one that gave the Philistines tumors and mice and that struck Uzzah dead has been in the house of Obed-Edom and it's now blessing their family? Did you hear? This is the good news of the ark. His men rushed to tell him this. And so now we see something different. David, having heard this new good news, reveres God for who he is. It's, and now he makes this second time entrance. There's a second time entrance. The first time was this grand procession with the, the harps and the lyres and the whole deal. But now it's a second time enter, entrance and it's different. Just have a look there in verse 12. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, only six steps, basically before they even got moving, they sacrificed an ox and a fat, fattened animal. This time it was going to be different. This time they were going to revere God. They were going to treat him with the respect and the honor that he was due. And so you see this. David actually comes and he makes a sacrifice before the ark, recognizing that God is holy. He does not mix with sin unless that sin can be paid for unless it can be paid for. And so he makes a sacrifice. You see, there's no sincerity of deeds. There's no religious acts. There's nothing uh, that can be done that would be a worthy, worthy sacrifice or payment. Only the sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, can pay for his sins. And then his presence becomes not the all-consuming fire. It becomes the warmth of pure joy. This is the good news of the ark. And this is also the good news of the gospel. God is an all-consuming fire who cannot be in the presence of sin. He's not a man, but he became a man in the person of Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sin. And when you look at that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, you think about the cross for a moment, you think about the account of the cross in the gospels, you start to get an answer for whether the punishment is too severe for the crime. Is, is our sin, is the punishment for our sin, is it too severe? You actually get an answer for that by looking at the cross because when you look at the cross, you see something totally gross. It's totally gross. Nails in his hands and feet. His beard is struck out. Whips that lacerate his back. He probably had part of his intestine hanging out. Most People didn't even make it to the cross. He didn't look like a man. He was totally disfigured. It was gross. And that's the point. Our sin is gross in the eyes of God. And the gross death of Jesus on the cross is the only worthy payment for our sin. The good news is that God's holiness is appeased, not through sincerity, not through religion, not through good deeds, not through mowing your neighbor's lawn. It's through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Without that payment, you cannot approach the presence of God. This is what David and Uzzah tried to do the first time. They tried to approach God without a worthy sacrifice. This time they did. And they experience his warmth. 
You think about this, when Jesus came to the earth and you read about his life in the Gospels, you see that actually people drew near to him and what did they do? They touched him and guess what? They didn't burn up. They, They touched him and they didn't burn up. What happened instead? They were totally cleansed. They were totally washed clean of their diseases and their sin. You see, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who stands in the gap who means is the means by which you can approach the holiness of God. When you touch Jesus, or when you're touched by Jesus, you don't burn up. You're actually welcomed in to the warmth of God's presence. In fact, if you look at the ark itself in that picture, you see the two cherubim, you see the cherubim and the seraphim, the angels on top of the ark, which forms kind of like a mercy seat, and the priest would go in every year and would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, making payment for the sins of the people. And it's interesting, this detail that you see when the women go to the tomb, Jesus' tomb, and what you see there is you see two angels either side of the tomb, and inside you have the blood sacrifice who then raises from the dead. What is that? That's the Ark of the Covenant. It means that that person who went into that tomb and died for you and rose again is the one in whom you can enter the presence of God. He is the one. He is the worthy sacrifice for sin. And that warmth of his presence, coming into the God, God's presence, sitting around the fire of God's presence is actually available to every person here today. That through Jesus Christ, you can mix in the presence of God. It won't consume you like it did Uzzah because Jesus has already been consumed for you. Do you realize that God is not going to punish you again? He's not going to punish anybody again if they're in Christ because Jesus has already taken the punishment for you. And so in him, we are made right with God. So we've seen the procession and the problem and the purpose And now we see the proper response to the ark. What's the proper response to the ark? Now David gets the gospel. And he actually dances with all his might. And you kind of see that it's it's in his underwear. It's in kind of his, his linen cloth. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You see, David here, he's overcome with this reality of coming into God's presence, that he strips himself of his kingly attire. He takes it off and he becomes like nothing, like a peasant, in order to make it known to everybody else that God is the true and the holy king. He wants everybody else to know that he should be worshipped, that it's with reverence and joy and passion that we should come to him for who he is. You know, I wonder, I wonder, church, if our kids can see that we love God like this. I, I know we're teaching them stuff. And I know we're showing them the straight and narrow, but do they know that we love him? Do they know that we worship him for who he is and what he's done? Uh, What I want my kids to see is not a stern man who knows a stack about the Bible, but someone who dances in his heart for the Lord, 
This is what David's heartbeat is here. He's so overcome by it. Dads, let your wives see it. Don't, don't let them see sternness, a sternness, a hardness. Let your kids see that your heart dances for the Lord, for who he is and what he's done. And this is actually why worship in the church, it, sometimes it can look like such self-abandonment. Because when you're right there and you're experiencing the fact that you're an unworthy sinner in the presence of a holy God through the person of Jesus, sometimes it fills your heart with joy and singing and awe. And right in that moment, your feet can dance and your heart can sing, your mouth can sing, your hands can raise. You can come right out of your shell and worship God and enjoy God for who he is. But worship can also just look like a procession too. We can learn all the moves, but God doesn't just want our moves. Listen, there's a, there's a message here for people who are expressive in corporate worship and non-expressive in corporate worship. Firstly, to expressives, make sure that your response to, is to God for who he is through the person of Jesus, that it's not about you, that it's not just become a learned behavior without your heart really being gripped. If you're expressive in worship, make sure that, that, your heart, that your hands aren't raised on Sunday, but through the week, your heart is far away. Maybe if you're, non-expressive, if you're non-expressive in worship, make sure your lack of expression isn't because there's a lack of real joy. And there's the presence of pride in your life. You see, David here abandons what other people think because he wants everyone around him to see who the true king is. Jonathan Edwards, when he preached in the 16th century, it said that when he preached, people went out into the street and they wailed. They wailed, they wept in the street. Self-abandonment, because they recognised God's holiness and the greatness of his sacrifice. And this is, I guess, for everyone. It's not really just about corporate worship, music and singing. Our time of gathering, it's actually about your life. Worship is about your life because worship is your response to God through Jesus. Every part of your life opened up to him for real change. That's what true worship is, worshiping God through the person of Jesus. And you know that this is happening in your life by looking at the fruit of your worship. What is it producing? What is it producing? And we see this just finally in the last bit of the text from verse 18. Just have a look in verse 18. It says, When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. What does David send them home with after worshipping? Does he send them with a to-do list? with religious activities, with guilt, with rules, he sends them home with a hamper of goodies. In in fact, no word of a lie, in the ancient Near East, a raisin cake was considered an aphrodisiac. David's like, go home and multiply. The point is, worship is about enjoyment. The fruit of it is about intimacy with God. 
It's not a procession, it's not a show, it's about enjoyment, it's about intimacy. How do you know if you're truly worshipping God and the church is worshipping God? Is there enjoyment? Is there enjoyment of God? Is there intimacy with God being created? Not rules, not religion, not guilt, but just pure, unbridled joy of who God is. That's what true worship is. Dare I say it, true worship makes the church dance. Don't worry if that makes you uncomfortable. I'm okay if you want to dance or if you don't want to dance, if your hands are in your pockets or your hands are in the air, but I mean a dancing in your heart. There's a dancing in your heart because of love for who God is and what he has done. That's David's response, but there's another response. It's in Michael's response, which is David's wife. And it comes from David's wife, although Michael, although she's not referred to in this text as David's wife here, she's referred to as Saul's daughter. That's interesting. She's got a heart like her dad, who was always religious, who always cared about the procession and the outward appearance and not the heart. So she's called Saul's daughter. And Michael, she's happy with the procession but not so much David's loss of dignity. You actually see this in the text. David comes back and she's like, what was that? What was that all about? You dancing in front of everybody, making a big song and dance. She's embarrassed. It's over the top. It's not fitting for him to act this way. She's religious. She's worried about the appearance like Saul. And this is what keeps people from truly worshipping God. Michael didn't get it. And the last verse of this chapter is actually tragic. It says that Michael didn't bear children till the day of her death. What does that mean? There was no fruit. There was no intimacy. There was no enjoyment of God. There was no blessing. So this is the message, true worship. It's not about the procession. It's not about the parade. It's about the dancing of your heart in response to who God is for what he's done through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to produce the harvest in our lives. That's what's going to produce a harvest in our church. It's not actually going to be through forms and programs and coolness about you or friendliness of of the church. It's about whether there's an intimacy and whether people actually come here and they say, you know what, these people love God. They enjoy God. They're not just doing good deeds for the benefit of other people. They genuinely enjoy God and that produces a freedom. It produces an intimacy. Let us worship God like this. I want to ask you to bow your heads right now. And just as we close, this morning you might say, Andy, I don't feel like David in my heart. I don't feel like David who worships God with dancing. I actually resonate more with Michael right now. There's a bitterness in my heart toward God. I don't feel like worshipping God. Perhaps I want to keep up the appearance because that would be too costly for me to let that go. But actually, if I was to be honest in my heart, I don't really want to worship God and I don't find enjoyment. Or perhaps there's a fear that's come over you as you recognise that you have been far too familiar, far too dismissive, of God's holiness, of who he actually is. And you're actually realizing that this morning. As you recognize how holy God is, you realize that your life's been going down a path where it shows you don't care about that. You're like, that'll do. My life, however it plays out, that'll do. 
Well, the, the call that I have for you today and would ask you humbly is don't, don't try and approach God in your own strength. Don't, don't try and touch the ark in your own strength. Don't go and put it on a new cart, fancy new cart, and call it God's presence. Don't do that. Be honest. Be honest with, you, with yourself. Don't carry on a procession. Really, the answer is just to hear the good news that David heard when his men came. And he said, the ark is blessing people. It's blessing people. That's, that's the purpose of God's presence. When you hear about what God's done, who he is and what he's done, hear the gospel that a sacrifice has been made. See, often when we don't feel like worshipping, when we find our heart, heart in a place that's really cold, we tell ourselves, worship, worship, worship. And we focus on the worship act itself or be better, be better, be better. And we focus on the deeds itself. But that's, that's kind of like carrying on the procession. That's kind of like, you know, riding God's presence in the car. It's the religious approach to God. But we're focusing on the wrong thing. Focus on the sacrifice that's been made for you. Just to enjoy that, consider that, what it actually means that you're, you're in the warmth of God's presence because of what Christ has done and just thank God for it. Enjoy it. Know that you can walk out of it here today and you're not going to pay the penalty for your sin if you're in Christ, if you've believed on Christ. Perhaps here today you haven't. You know that you've never actually really believed on Christ and today you want to believe on Christ and know that you can walk out of here today in that freedom. In that freedom, I do not have to pay up my sins. Jesus was beaten up for it, and he died for it. If you believe in Jesus, if you receive him today, he promises to wipe your sin clean, to wipe your slate clean, and give you a brand new start with God. Oh, I wonder if anyone needs a brand new start today. Do you need a brand new start? Come to Jesus. When people touch Jesus, he totally cleansed them. These are people from the pits. Tax collectors, prostitutes, people diseased with leprosy. And they came up to Jesus and they touched him and he cleansed them. This is what he offers for us today. Oh Lord, would you, would you come and make this known by your spirit, not in the words that I say, but in the power of the spirit, come and grip hearts today to help us realize just the gravity and the majesty and the glory of your great name and your holiness, that we cannot approach you in any way, shape or form. And yet in your love, which is perfect in every way, you sent Jesus Christ, your son, to die for us, Lord, and therefore in him we are clean. Oh Lord, let our heart dance. Let the church sing. Let us praise you, Lord. Let people who are far from you today come and draw near to you today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together as we sing.